I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, friends. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. You're listening to Once Upon a Gene, and I am your host, Effie Parks. So the podcast has morphed into a talk show with a couple rare dads, Daniel DeFabio and Bo Bigelow, founders of the Rare Disease Film Festival and the Disorder Channel. You can access Once Upon a Gene TV right now through your Roku or your Amazon Fire Stick. Just download the Disorder Channel and you can't miss us. I'm also really happy to tell you that we added it to YouTube. So if you don't have one of those devices, you can now find us online. Google Once Upon a Gene TV on YouTube or click the link in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe so you'll know when new episodes come out. And the first episode features Nikki McIntosh from RareMamas.com. And we're talking about ways to cope and embrace the holidays as families who are living with rare disease. It's fun and we would love to hear from you. So check it out. Out. And today's episode, I'm so excited to share with you. She may be a celebrity to the world in a typical sense. As a young girl, Madison made her way to Los Angeles to pursue a career in acting. It led to several roles, including Chicago PD, Supernatural, and Arrow. But she's also one of those rare disease superheroes and celebrities in our community, the rare disease community. Two of Madison's three younger sisters have been diagnosed with HBSL, hypomyelination with brainstem and spinal cord involvement and leg spasticity. So HBSL for short. I have had a chance to get to know her a little bit through a Global Genes event this year, and I just find siblings of rare kids so interesting. They're so insightful and wise beyond their years. In this episode, Madison jokes that she feels old as a 25-year-old, but this girl is simply an old soul, like most siblings of Rare that I've met. This episode is such a valuable resource for parents like me and our extended families who love these kids, but especially to the glass children like Madison. She's so open and so honest, and I just love her so much. I know you're going to love her too. Please enjoy my conversation with Madison McLaughlin. Hi, Madison. Hi, Effie. Yay. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk to you. I am so excited to talk to you. I've been wanting to do this ever since we met a couple months ago through Global Genes. So I am so happy that we're here and that we're going to do this thing finally. Yay. Me too. I'm so grateful. So I definitely want to talk about you mostly and your journey as a sibling to your beautiful sisters. But first, just for some context, can you tell us about your family? Absolutely. Yeah. I am the oldest of four girls. There's me and there's my three younger sisters. They're all teenagers right now, which um, is very exciting. <laughs> it's, it's actually is really awesome, though. They're they're amazing. They're constantly teaching me stuff every day from everything from like the hot show on Netflix to watch to politics. So I am super, super proud of them. But they are, let's see, we have Marissa and she is going to be 19 soon. So she's 18 right now. And we have Mallory who is 16 and Marin who is 14. And Marissa and Marin, the 18 and the 14 year old have a ultra rare disease. There's less than 25 people in the world diagnosed with their disease. It's called HBSL, also known as hypomyelination with brainstem and spinal cord involvement and leg spasticity. And Mallory is a carrier of the disease. So, and then there's me, <laughs> the oldest. <laughs> so Mallory and I are both typically developing. Mallory hasn't had any symptoms at this point. Mallory's never had any symptoms. Marissa is the second oldest person diagnosed with the disease. So we are still learning. Every day we're learning new stuff. What we do know is that it is a leukodystrophy. 
So by definition, it is progressive, but we've been really fortunate to have an incredible team around us. So they started all different types of treatments and therapies really early on. And um, basically how it affects them, this specific leukodystrophy is that it's kind of physically in different ways. For instance, they use mobility assistance. So they both have wheelchairs and, and walkers and things like that. And then, of course, the spine is involved as well. So there's a lot of like, we work on a lot of core strength and physical therapy and stuff like that with them. Cognitively, they are not affected through HBSL. So they are, Marissa graduated early, Marin is on set to, to graduate within the next year as well, graduate high school early at 14, which is crazy even saying it. Um, <laughs> I totally get it. But yeah, so that's, that's how it affects them. And Mallory has never shown any symptoms. Wow. That is a house full of amazing women. And it's a blessing for the families before you to see her being one of the oldest kids with this diagnosis. And then it's also really kind of uncertain and maybe a little scary to have one of the oldest patients and not necessarily have that patient to look forward on and see what's going on in their life and their health situation. Absolutely. It's really interesting with um with rare diseases. It's like, you know, you you wait and you pray and you scream at the sky for a diagnosis for so long. And then if you're like us, you get the diagnosis and then it just gives you more questions. <laughs> I mean, Marissa was, let's see, we had been, I, I have to like go back with my, with my years here, but I want to say it was a good I think 13 years or 12 years of not having a diagnosis before we did get it. And when we did, it was so interesting. It was pretty much all thanks to a man named Stephen Damiani and his family in Australia. And they funded the genome therapy that was done by Dr. Ryan Taft. And they found a diagnosis for Stephen's son, Massimo, and they needed people to validate the disease. And that's where my sisters came in. They validated it. And so it was really interesting. The first time that Stephen talked to my sisters, I think it was kind of a little bit of that for him where he got to talk to Marissa, who was older um, than his son and just kind of be like, oh, you know, this is, it was very, it was really, really moving. And just thinking about it, I'm getting goosebumps and I'm kind of tearing yeah. up because, <laughs> you know, when you find a family who they get it and they've been through it and, and you finally, you know, have, it's a little bit like the light at the end of the tunnel. And so for us, it's, it's really interesting. Um, my sisters are amazing. They're just legends and icons in every way that they could be and seeing them be very honest about the fear that comes with being some of the oldest diagnosed with this disease and with it being so new um i mean that's it's very brave of them to be as honest as they are with you know their fears with that and then it's kind of like they process that they they acknowledge it and then they kind of just go back and they're like, all right, time to go to physical therapy again, time to go back to IVIG, time to watch the next episode of Dancing with the Stars, you know, <laughs> kind of time to go on with life. Those are the superpowers, for sure. Those are the superpowers of, you know, people in Rare, I think is, you know, getting to kind of deal with that hard stuff, feel it, hate it, mm -hmm. <laughs> learn from it, move through it, and then also find what makes you happy find what makes you feel warm it's a it's a skill it's a gift it's hard <laughs> and yeah it's really amazing to see it's all about balance that's what we're always yeah. learning oh it's yeah balance. balance that's it <laughs> walking on the tightrope of oh, balance completely. yes <laughs> so other than all of the awesome things that you can probably imagine of why I wanted to talk to you, something really specific jumps out to me about you, you know, because caregivers are so often thought of as parents, parents like me, and you are one of two siblings that I've ever heard call themselves a caregiver. And when I heard that, when you said that, it just... It just like stopped me in my tracks. And I was like, yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Who is this person? And it is what you are. I'm, you know, you're so much of a part of the support and uh, the caring process as, you know, parents and, uh, you know, the doctors and therapists are. And I was just wondering, like, when did you start calling yourself that or considering yourself that? And when you did that, 
what did it change in you, if anything? Like, how did it affect you after you started realizing that that was a title for you? Oh, it changed everything. I was, just for a little bit of context, I was six years old when Marissa was first, well, she wasn't even diagnosed (laughs) when she first started showing signs. And it was basically, I mean, it was overnight. It was within two hours. Um, She was, seemed like a typically developing child one second and then had a vaccination, which because of her underlying genetic disease, which obviously we didn't know about, kind of acted as an insult to the brain is what they always called it. And so they kind of always explained it. They were like, you know, if it hadn't been the vaccination, it could have been anything, a fall or, or a really bad cold or whatever. Um, but so I was six when she first started showing symptoms. And it was, I mean, like I said, it was so fast. At one second, we were getting chocolate ice cream. And the next, my mom and my stepdad were rushing Marissa to the ER. So it was very, very fast. And it was really interesting growing up with that. I, I don't think I ever fully processed how that affected me and how these new roles of, of maturity and responsibility affected me until I was much older. I mean, I was six. It was very, I was very young and it was never a question of like, you know, does Madison step up? How much do we tell her? I got really, really lucky. My mom was very open. I mean, obviously very gentle. I was a kid, but very open with what was going on and very open with the fact that we didn't know what was happening and we didn't have answers. And I really, looking back, I think that really, really helped me a lot because it helped me always feel like I was included. And I remember just, I mean, you know, I was my baby sister. I had prayed for a baby sister for, I mean, my whole, my whole life, those, all those six years I had been wanting a baby sister. And so there was no question of like, you know, yeah, of course I'm going to go to these long doctor appointments. And yeah, of course I'm going to entertain Marissa while the doctors talk to my parents. And yeah, of course I'm going to, you know, maybe give up on going to something with one of my friends because we have to drive an hour to therapy for Marissa. But it wasn't until I was 19, maybe, and it was because I started therapy because I really didn't have any other choice. I had hit a really low point where I I had always loved taking care of not only Marissa and Marin, but also my mom and my other sister, Mallory, and everyone around me. I mean, if you spend five minutes with me, you'll you'll kind of pick up that I'm a full type two Enneagram all the way. And I'm really proud of that. And I know that it's one of my strengths. But I had spent so much time taking care of everybody else that I never learned the skills of taking care of myself and of really prioritizing any type of self-care, of setting boundaries. And so the waters got pretty murky. And I found myself at about 17, maybe hanging out with not the best people, having an eating disorder, and just running myself totally dry because I was spending all of my energy and time taking care of everybody else and trying to live up to this idea of being like this perfectionist. It it kind of, you know, going to therapy and kind of really uncovering why I felt the need to be so perfect and to never show any signs of vulnerability and to never cry in front of anybody and to always seem like this, you know, indestructible piece of foundation that was there only to support everybody else. We did a lot of digging and I realized, oh yeah, the reason I'm feeling so stressed out, or at least a part of it is because I've had all this responsibility and maturity that I'm so thankful for, but I wasn't recognizing it for what it was. And it was like, oh, it it kind of started hitting me. I was like, I am also there with my sisters, driving them to appointments. I am also there sitting for hours in waiting rooms during surgeries. I am also, I'm a legal guardian of them. You know, I bring them to appointments when my mom can't. So there's a lot of that weight. Like I was always very involved in discussions about their treatment and their care and their prognosis. And that's when it kind of hit me. It was my therapist actually who started calling me a caregiver. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like I'm not a parent. And she was like, Madison, (laughs) look at your life. And I was like, oh, interesting. And then it, it just kind of all clicked. And then, and then once I recognized that, and once I started honoring that, it helped me with everything. It helped me manage my stress. It helped me 
kind of understand and acknowledge when I was feeling more irritable and when I was having tougher times and it helped me set boundaries and it helped me really communicate with not just my mom, but with my sisters too. And I, and just kind of say, you know what, I love you guys. And I'm here to help you. If you need anything, let me know. But there has to be like boundaries and there has to be a really, really honest communication here. So yeah, it wasn't until, I mean, you know, it felt like a, a lifetime. I mean, I was <laughs> from the time I was six until I was about like probably 18 or 19 when we started going with the caregiver title. As a mom listening to you tell me that, it just like makes my heart shake a little bit. And I think it's so important for the people listening who have multiple kids to hear that perspective from you. Because while we are all doing all of these things, the other kid is also physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted, psychologically exhausted, maybe not performing well in school, maybe hanging out with some loser friends and <laughs> yeah you know maybe canceling it's, some really important things that you shouldn't have well, to cancel really, as a kid it's really interesting right I mean there's a there's a term that's really wonderful for it um called glass children that kind of really um perfectly kind of sums up a little bit of what it feels like especially when you're a teenager and it comes basically from two different meanings one is that you know siblings that are typically developing are often looked through like they're glass and the other uh, the other meaning of it is that these kids are often seen as invincible and as you know so strong and such good helpers and um, it's really really easy when so much of your self-worth and so much of what you're proud of yourself for comes from taking care of other people it's easy to take that on as your entire identity and to forget like oh no wait I'm a person too outside of that. So I think it's, it's really important to recognize, and I'm always, I'm constantly checking in with all three of my sisters, but um, with Mallory about, about that, it's like, you know, especially after I moved out, just checking in with Mallory and being like, okay, I know you're helping with, you know, a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff and stuff at the hospital and everything. So like, how are you doing? How are your grades? How are your friendships going? What TV shows are you watching? And just to, my mom was always really good about that. She was really good about just um, individualizing each of us as ourselves, but also with her relationship with us. Obviously, it's not always possible to have one-on-one -on -one time with every kid as a parent, because especially when you are, you know, juggling a rare disease and all the appointments and everything that comes with that. But even just little things, you know, a lot of the times Mallory and my mom will like get up earlier and, and, you know, have breakfast together before everybody else gets up. And my conversations with my mom are, you know, we talk about different stuff. And I think it's just, she, she did a really good job of that. And so I've been able to kind of also model that same behavior with my three sisters. It's funny because you obviously are a caregiver and do all the things and have guardianship and you've taken care of your family and your mom and you know, eventually yourself, but now you're doing all of those and then also taking care of Mallory in a way from that perspective of when you were kind of like a solid sibling caregiver. So it's like, you're, you're still doing it. I have this very <laughs> strong belief that like, um, whenever, you know, whenever the crummier parts of our life happen, um, one of my ways of getting through that, and I've done this with, it, it, not just within my family, with my friends, with people who follow me on social media, with, with all of it. Um, I think, you know, well, at least this thing sucks right now and I'm hating going through it, but because I'm going through it now, that means that I'll have something to say when somebody five months or five years down the line comes to me and they ask advice about this thing, you know? Like at least you're able to use it. To, and I mean, and truthfully, I needed the same thing. And so I was able to turn to one of my best friends. Her name is Kelsey Fowler. And she is the sister to the amazing Micah Fowler, who is like a superhero. Um, <laughs> He's like a superhero <laughs> in the disabled community. He starred on Speechless on ABC and was just like one of the funniest guys I've ever met in my life. But when Kelsey and I met, she was able to kind of hold me accountable as well and to kind of say like, hey, I know what it is to go through because Micah's a bit older than my sister. So she was like, I know how weird it is when 
when they turn 18, when they turn 21. I know how weird it is trying to balance, you know, being a caregiver and also letting them have their own independence and balancing your relationships as you're kind of shifting into, you know, both being adults. And so I was lucky enough to have people like her who were sharing their experiences with me. So it's like the least I can do is to to do the same. And especially with Mallory, um, because I know a lot of what what her life is like right now because we have the same exact family. And so yeah, I think it's I think it's our responsibility just as like human beings, you know. All of the things that that I do that are helpful to other people is because somebody else has done that for me at some point. Like that's how I learned it. And so my goal is that well if I do it for other people and then they learn it and they do it on and you know it's just kind of like you just have to pass it on. Totally. I'm so glad you have that friend too that you found that you could connect with and maybe share those things that you never really want to say out loud with them. <laughs> I think anybody in this community understands that whether you meet someone online or at a convention or in a doctor's office when you meet someone who can kind of, you know, relate to what you're going through and stuff, it really is like a a light bulb moment, like, aha, like, oh, we found each other. And it's such a good feeling. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you. And one of the main things that I try to <laughs> to share with people is find those people because then you can work on the stuff. Totally. A hundred percent. So what types of things did she do for you? Or maybe earlier than that, like, what did your mom or some of the adults in your life do for you and your sister Mallory even that made you feel like you did have your own special stuff? Like, what, what happened that made you kind of feel like you did get that time or that space that maybe other parents could think about doing for their kids, the siblings of their kids? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is my mom has, all, like I said, always been very, very honest and very vulnerable. And that sounds, it sounds weird because I know the instinct, obviously I'm not a parent, but having even the relationship with my sisters, your instinct is to be strong for the people you take care of, especially when they're really young. And your instinct is to, by being strong, you know, of course, air quotes around strong, so many of us think that that is like, I'm going to not cry. I'm going to go into the room and shut the door and break down. And then I'm going to redo my makeup and walk back outside like everything's okay. And that's what being strong is. And I got really lucky because I had a mom who didn't necessarily believe that. I was fortunate enough to have a mom and a grandmother and a bunch of people around me who knew the importance of vulnerability and transparency and honest communication. And it was so refreshing to know that my mom was going through the same stuff that I was going through and that she also didn't have the answers. And it, there was something really peaceful about being able to just kind of sit together and be like, mom, I'm scared. And her be like, yeah, me too. You want some ice cream? Like, <laughs> what do you, how do you want to balance this? You know, let's get through it together. Um, so that was really important. And then also I was in every doctor's appointment. I was in you know, every time that the doctor would be like, oh, maybe we should talk in the hall. My mom would be like, no, she can hear it. We have doctors who, especially our team now, I've always felt comfortable asking questions to them, being like, okay, what is an MRI? <laughs> you know, like very, very basic things. Like, what does it Not mean? Not basic. We all had to do that. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> but I remember being like, you know, they'd be like, oh, we're going to do this to see if, if she's having any seizure activity. And I was able to be like, okay, and what if she is? And how will you know that? And, you know, every question that I felt like I had, no matter how big it was, and, you know, talking about like really big, scary stuff, like the prognosis and, and the life expectancy and all of that. And then even to the smaller things like, oh, is this medication going to make her really sleepy when she takes it? Or, you know, can I send in my stuffed animal with her when she goes to the OR? Things like that. My mom always made sure that I was able to ask those questions and always made sure that I was in the room. And the times that I couldn't be there, whether it was like a logistic thing, like, you know, I had to be in school when they were at an appointment or if it was, you know, a, a different, of course, now with COVID, there's a lot of restrictions on who can go into appointments and who can be there for surgeries and stuff. She always still made sure that I was included. There was like, you know, there were never things that she hid. There were things that she would, of course, 
I don't want to say like dumbed down because it's not dumbing down at all, but things that she would make in a more like basic, easier way for me to understand, especially when I was younger. But that was really helpful because I was able to be like, okay, I'm a part of this. And then as far as like individualizing our relationships, it can be really, really little, little stuff. Like it doesn't have to be, I'm going to take this one child on a weekend vacation while the other three are at home, or I'm going to take this one kid and have a full date all to ourselves. Because the reality of the situation is that that's not really possible a lot of the time. So it could be something as simple as like having your own text chain, you know, with one of your siblings or with, or with one of your children, if you're a parent, um, and kind of having your own inside jokes and having your own little things that you share. I mean, it's a million little things, honestly, with with my mom and how she kind of differentiates our because we're all different people. And I think she just honors that. And she's also this is gonna <laughs> this might sound weird. And when I was a teenager, I hated this so much, but I'm really, really thankful for it. Um, she held us all equally accountable to everything. So it was one of those things where like none of us got away with anything, meaning that like (laughs) whether it was one of my one of my sisters who was in a wheelchair who did something stupid or if it was me who did something stupid or Mallory, (laughs) we were all like kind of called out in the same way and we're all held accountable for our own responsibilities, whether that's like cleaning your room or doing your physical therapy or for me even still like, you know, if I go somewhere. I have to let my mom know when I make it there and when I leave. Otherwise, she thinks that I was like kidnapped or something. So I think that equal sense of accountability, it, in a weird way, it helped like my sisters and I kind of band together and be like, oh, yeah, doesn't it suck that we have to like do this? <laughs> um, yes. And so it really strengthened our bond and like our relationships as siblings. Yeah, no, I can definitely understand why that would have been important. And, you know, I wonder if she was intentional about that or if she's just a really well-rounded badass. (laughs) No, she talks about it now where she was like, you know, she made those decisions because it's so hard to look at your kid. I would imagine, you know, even as a, even as a sibling, like to look at Marissa and Marin and see everything that they go through and all the treatments. I mean, still they're getting um, monthly IVIG treatments that just wipe them out. I mean, the, the side effects from that are just, like really awful and then I mean you know they're still getting like Botox injections and various muscles in their legs and all the surgeries and it's heartbreaking to look at that and you'd so it would be so easy to say you know what sure I will cut you slack for being disrespectful to this person or for saying something really snappy or for not doing this thing that you're supposed to do or for not getting your schoolwork in time because you're, you're going through a lot but <laughs> I think that, you know, as tempting as that is, looking back, I think it would have been more of a disservice. And I'm really thankful that, I mean, obviously there, you know, there's times when you just have to call a mental health day and just be like, we're not doing anything. This whole week has been crap and we're going to acknowledge that and honor it and just sit on the couch and cry together and watch a Netflix show. You know, <laughs> there are those days. Well, and I love that she kind of made that just a regular thing in your family. You know, I think I think people are getting better at that now where it's okay to have the feelings and the emotions and to just let them be. And I love that you all communicated about it so effectively. And I think that definitely brought you further along in the journey. I mean, it definitely wasn't easy. And I think I think one of the best things that my mom did was started us in both like individual and family counseling and therapy. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about. Like, when did you when did you start as a family and individually? It wasn't all at once. Mallory was the first one to start in therapy because it was more visible to see what she was going through because she had Marissa, who's two years older than her, and Marin, who's two years younger than her. And so she was right in the middle of Marissa and Marin. And when she was about six, so when Mallory was about six, um, Marin, the youngest, who's 14 now, was having a really, really hard hospital stay, and nobody thought that she was going to make it. And it was really traumatic, as you can imagine, as I'm sure a lot of people listening have probably been through. And that type of of 
grief and uncertainty really definitely takes its toll on anybody, but especially did on Mallory because she was so young. And so my mom made the really smart decision to kind of be like, you know, let's create a space that's just Mallory's and um, found a, a great family therapist and started working with her. And then I was always, of course, like, I'm fine. I handle everything so well. And I am super strong and I don't have any problems or emotions or issues in the whole world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, I got this. I did not got this. Um, <laughs> I, I, like I said, I mean, it was around the time I think I was 17 when I started therapy and I was kind of forced into it a little bit because left to my own devices, I did, was not making the best choices. I was pretty deep into an eating disorder that was very control-based, which is really, really common with with sibling caregivers, especially adolescents. It's really, really common that they develop something like an eating disorder um, to kind of regain some type of control. And kind of going through that, I realized the importance of it. And I think my mom could kind of see the benefits that it was having with both Mallory and myself. And so then she found a a great therapist for for the whole family. And everybody has like their individual time and like group time when it's necessary. And it has totally changed the game. Because I think when when you have a household with like mixed siblings, where you have some siblings who are typically developing and are become caregivers and then sub siblings who are diagnosed with, with anything, especially a rare disease. Um, there can be a lot of stuff that's unsaid and that can lead to resentment and that can lead to, you know, it, it, for us, it wasn't a thing, like we're not a house of lashing out. So it's, it's not like, you know, yelling and, and slam doors. It's more like the silent treatment and a lot of passive aggressiveness and, you know, like <laughs> little, little tiny things that end up being really big things. And so having that open space of communication and learning just about yourself and how to set boundaries and why you process things the way that you do and the importance of communication has helped a lot of us because even now, when I'm, I mean, you got to remember, like I said, all of my sisters are teenagers right now. So they're still, I mean, they're on any given day. There are, there are lots of moments where like at least one of us is irritated at at least one of the other ones, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's one of those things where, I mean, my sisters will be the first to say, like, I think you're projecting something onto me that you're going through. <laughs> and they'll say things like, you know, um, I really need to set this boundary. It's really important. I I love you and I care about you, but I need to set this boundary and like have my me time. So unless somebody's dying or the house is burning down, don't come in my room for like the next hour and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, and it's been really, really helpful because it's, it's just been so amazing because you under, you learn to understand that nine times out of 10, when somebody is lashing out at you, it's not personal. It's because they're under all this weight of their own stuff. And that's been really helpful for us. I think it's the best thing my mom ever did. Short of like having all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and that. (laughs) I think putting everyone in therapy was like such an amazing, although I should say for any parents listening, I was so reluctant. I had to be like, I, yeah, I had, it was, I was forced into Okay, good. I was just going to ask if you were pissed about going by yourself. I was not stoked. I was not accepting of it. It took me about a year and a half and three different therapists for me to be like, okay, I guess I'll go on. Wow. And now I love it. Now I I tell everyone that I meet, I'm like, hi, nice to meet you. My name is Madison. Are you in therapy? You should be. (laughs) I just think it's so brilliant. I think it's just fascinating for us to understand like why we process things the way that we do and how we accept love and how we you know, give love and, and all types of stuff. But yeah, I, it took me years to get to this point. So if you're having yourself or your child or your sibling who is not stoked on it, don't give up on them. I needed some tough love definitely of being like, you know, I know that you think that you can handle everything on your own, but you're 17 and you don't know what you're talking about. So go to therapy. I think a lot of us as caregiver parents can also take that lesson to heart. 
I think for me to, on a deeper level, accepting that I needed help kind of made it feel like I was failing in a way. It made it feel like I wasn't being a good enough caregiver. I wasn't being a strong enough sister. I wasn't being a good enough daughter. If I needed help, then I wasn't good enough. And that was something that I wrestled with for a really long time because you have to realize like, no, no, no. What makes you such a good caregiver? What makes you such a good sibling? What makes you such a good parent is being able to say, hey, I need help and I'm going to go get it. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to be better able to take care of you and show up for you because I've taken care of myself. Absolutely. Yes. Can't pour from an empty cup and we have to pour a lot. So (laughs) what are some of the really important boundaries that you had to make for yourself after realizing that you were putting too much pressure on yourself and that being strong wasn't necessarily this one way. What are some things that you did or implemented or even still have to kind of go back to sometimes that really help you? Um, I think the biggest, like the most dramatic thing I did was when I moved out. Um, I, I started working when I was really young and so I was always traveling for work. But when I was in LA, I stayed with my mom and I stayed at home. And then when I moved back from Vancouver, so I was, I think I was like 21 and I was finally like, okay, I need to move out. And I, I knew that I needed that space. I knew that I needed just, you know, to, to do all the things you have to do when you're 21 and you want to move out. Um, but it was a really, really hard journey just to voice that even to myself because I felt really guilty because I felt like as a lot of caregivers feel like, Oh, but without me, what are they going to do? They can't do it. And so I have to stay and I have to just suck it up. And as soon as I kind of started talking about that, both in therapy and with my mom and then eventually with my sisters, it was, it was some sad times because it was of course a different dynamic, not being there all the time and not, you know, saying good night all when we're going to bed and stuff like that. But I mean, you learn how to adapt and it was definitely something that I needed. And then in little ways, like I said, you know, not just me, but all my sisters will be like, hey, I need to go to my room and and shut the door for an hour and please do not interrupt me. I need to just like chill out. (laughs) And it's been really interesting. Honestly, we're still navigating it and I'm still learning. I think the biggest thing is just communication because if you do something or if you expect somebody else to read your mind, which I am so guilty of all the time, I'm like, what do you mean you do, you can't read my mom? Like, I'm in my mind. <laughs> I'm like, I'll go to my mom and I'll be like, you birthed me. You should know what I'm thinking. You should know everything that I'm thinking and I should never have to communicate anything to you by myself. You should just know. <laughs> so yeah, I think just like communicating like, hey, I am having a hard day or a hard week and I need to just go in the car or go around, you know, go in the neighborhood for a walk or drive to the beach or just whatever and just like take that time I think just communicating that so that there aren't any hurt feelings and my sisters tell me that that they need to do that it's not like oh you don't want to hang out with me or you feel like I'm suffocating you it's them just being like hey this is just what I need right now and then you know we respect that from each other and I think we kind of also expect that from each other at this point yeah man That must have been such a difficult decision. And I really respect you for making it. Moving out is, I mean, just thinking like probably all the anguish you felt of like, what happens when they're sick? What happens if I'm gone? I feel so guilty. Yeah. It's worse than I'm traveling, honestly. I was in New York last year for a while and for about a month. And it was one of those things where I remember I was walking across the Brooklyn Bridge with my cousin and we were going to get, you know, the best pizza in Brooklyn. And we were so excited about it. And I get this call and it was from my mom and they were having to evacuate from one of the wildfires here. And my heart stopped and I was like, I need to get on a plane. I can't like, I need to go back. And my cousin was like, you're going to fly into a wildfire. And then during an evacuation, make your mom go pick you up from LAX. And I was like, okay, good point. Probably not the best way to handle this. 
<laughs> and so it was about kind of just adjusting. You're a fixer. And, oh, entirely. And I was like, they can't go through yeah. it alone. Well, guess what? Spoiler alert. They did. They're fine. <laughs> and because they, they're also really good about saying, you know, like, oh, we need help. So I, if they ever needed me to come back for anything, then they would be honest about it. But it was a lot of me just trusting that, you know, they're their own people. And my mom is a grown woman and she can handle evacuation. <laughs> and Who can't handle a fire I evacuation know, right? any, anymore? But um, it was really interesting because I really had to slow down a bit and kind of. I bet that actually felt good too in the end to not go, right? To maybe get scolded from your cousin for a minute and then realize. Part of it. It was, if I'm being totally honest, which I mean, if I'm not, what's the point? I would say it was about, it was about probably 60, 40, 60% of me was like, oh, I feel a little bit free because now I can stay in New York for three more weeks and we can do all of the fun New York things. And, you know, I know that they're okay. And then the 40% part of me was like, oh, uh oh, they don't need me. They're fine without me. What is my value as a human being if I'm not taking care of them? And that's why I go to therapy. <laughs> and and that's why you know I'm able to like even say that stuff to my sisters and to my mom. And they're like, well, of course you have your own identity outside of this. You have all of these qualities as a human being and all of these interests, and you should nurture those sides of yourself as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you have those tools, right? Those coping skills that you've learned, obviously, through your mom having such amazing communication, but through therapy, especially. Yeah, because it's, it really is different for everybody. And you have to figure out like, what works best for you. My thing is, I love getting in the car, blasting my happy music, like driving around. I live in LA. So I can like, you know, drive an hour, be at the beach, drive two hours, be in the mountains, see the snow. Um, and I fully take advantage of that. I did a couple of weeks ago. I just, I mean, it's obviously COVID times. So I was like, well, it's not like I can go anywhere for a really long time. So I just took a drive up to some lakes and the mountains and then <laughs> drove back home. <laughs> I saw that on Instagram. That's also my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Turn up my, turn up my music and like, just drive. Sometimes it's like, I'm too tired to even do that. And I just, some, you know, sometimes you're like, I know that I need to cry, but I don't know why. Like, I just need to express emotion. <laughs> yes. And so I will literally, yes, I like, do. there's a few different, there's, like, there's very specific episodes of certain TV shows I'll turn on. There's one episode of Grey's Anatomy that just destroys me every time. And there's, like, a couple episodes of This Is Us. So it's, like, there's sometimes self-care looks like sitting in your bed, eating a bag of, like, Trader yeah. Joe's marshmallows, watching an episode of This Is Us and crying. And then being like, okay, I feel better now. <laughs> Sometimes it looks like driving yes. around. Sometimes it looks like, you know, going with your friends and like pre-COVID times, of course, like going and getting a drink with your friends. Although a lot of my friends and I were doing like, um, we do like little cocktail hours over Zoom. So I think it's, Fun. you have to know, you have to just really listen to your body and listen to what you need. You need to be around other people. Do you need to cry? Do you need to just like get out? Um, and have fresh air. And you, then you have to honor that. Because if you're feeling that you need that, it's for a reason. Yes, I do think boundaries and self care are very similar. But it's, I think it's really important for you to also remind everyone because yes, self care has obviously became a buzzword and it's glossy and it's pretty. But it's the little things, right? It's those little things that we can actually consistently do in our life in our schedule. I think it's just it's very I think we just have to be honest with ourselves and we have to really do it for us. Yes. So are you in any sort of like Facebook group or organizational group of any kind with siblings like you? And if so, is there kind of like a common thread of what they're saying that they wish they had or that they wish their family would do? Or is there anything that is kind of common that kids and caregivers like you really need from family members? Um, I'm not in like an organized support group like that. We're actually trying to kind of launch our own little version of it. Um, this month, my family launched our own foundation for HBSO. Yes, like, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We're, it's, I have no idea what I'm doing, but we're learning as we're going. 
that's how we do it. (laughs) It's like, it's better than doing nothing. (laughs) Um, But so aside of that, that we eventually want to tap into is going to be really, really building a strong community. But right now I do have just people that I've met largely through an organization I work with. I know you work with called Global Genes because when I, when I first found them, I just kind of, I just went to one of their summits and I was meeting all of these kids that, I mean, I was, I think I was like 18 my first time that I went to one of their summits and I was meeting all these other, you know, teenagers that were either patients or siblings. And that's kind of how that started. So there's, you know, tons of people that I know within this community. And basically what I'm, what I hear a lot, because I just did a sibling Q&A with Global Genes and a lot of the questions that were coming in from both types of siblings was like, I don't want to feel like a burden. And it's really interesting because I know Mallory and I have felt that, like we don't want to feel like a burden and take away from the attention and care that Marissa and Marin need. Meanwhile, Marissa, I was just having a conversation with earlier because I was like, is there anything you think I should, you know, touch on or, or talk about? And she kind of reiterated, she was like, and her, so did Marin, they were both like, well, we don't want to feel like a burden and take away from the attention and care that you and Mallory need because you're both like growing individuals as well. So I think that the the best thing to do is to really equally acknowledge every kid. We kind of, we started this um, program with Children's Hospital Los Angeles here because when we started going there back in 2007, um, it was a regular occurrence. Every time we went, we would walk through the halls and it would be my mom, me, Mallory, pushing the wheelchairs and Marissa and Marin in their wheelchairs. And every single time somebody would stop the girls, like they would stop our group and they would give Marissa and Marin a book or a teddy bear or ask them if they wanted to hear a song or, you know, whatever, like a, a bowl of candy, something. Um, and every single time, they did not even acknowledge Mallory and I's existence. And so we started talking about that um, with some people in the psychology department at Children's. And then they started talking about it with some of their bosses and colleagues. And then they started talking about it and they started talking about it. And now if you walk through Children's Hospital and you have a typically developing child pushing their sibling in a wheelchair, both children will be stopped. Both children will be talked to. Both children will be asked how their day is or what their favorite superhero is. Both of them will be given a book or a board game or a teddy bear or whatever they're giving out. It's entirely equal. And I think that is really the best thing that you can do as especially extended family members. You know, like when you come over and you're you're visiting, you're talking, it's so I understand the the intent behind giving more focus to the child with the disability. I understand because you're thinking, oh, they need to be a little bit coddled or they need, they have such a hard life, so I should pay a little bit of extra attention to them. And I understand the intent, but what ends up happening is they end up feeling like, oh, why aren't you talking to my sibling? Or why is all the attention on me? And then the sibling starts feeling like, okay, well, clearly, you know, Aunt Vicky isn't concerned at all about me. So I'm just going to go over here and like scroll through my phone and, you know, just kind of drift away into the corner. So I think that's the biggest thing is just equally, like just making sure that your attention, your care, not just, not just, I don't want to say love because it's not that, because of course people love these kids equally, It's just in how you show it, that it should be equal across the board so that neither child has to wonder like, oh, you know, why am I not getting same amount of attention. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for making that change in your local hospital. I am so proud of you guys for doing that. And that makes me so happy. It honestly makes me really happy because I still take my sisters there for different treatments. And seeing other kids, you know, because now my sisters are are a bit older, so they don't always get stopped for like balloon animals or anything anymore. (laughs) But when you see other families and both or like all of the siblings are being talked to and they're all getting whatever the prize is and they're all getting to talk about whatever they want to talk about. It just makes me so happy to see it now because it's like, yay, like we're moving forward. We're making progress. It's good. 
oh, it's so important. And it's such a good reminder for all of us and especially us parents, you know, to make sure. I like the way you put that is distributing it equally. When you see your your typically developing child kind of get a little bit more quiet or get a little bit more rebellious or whatever their way is of saying like, hey, I need attention, is to just kind of check in with them. And before you, you know, get onto them about whatever trouble they've gotten into, because no doubt there's probably some sort of trouble, you just be like, hey, where is this really coming from? Like, how are you feeling really? Because looking back all of the times when I was younger and I was more distant or more rebellious or more whatever, it was because I was like feeling particularly weighted down or helpless or confused or dealing with like the grief that comes with having rare disease in your family. Can you just make a pamphlet for all of us later? Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) A little brochure. (laughs) I'll just be coming back to this episode when Ezzy looks really upset and is mad at me. I'll be texting Madison in the middle of the night. Please feel free to. Honestly, that's why I think community is so important. We definitely all need accountability partners, like even if it's for your self-care, if it's for your boundaries, if it's just to complain about hard stuff, if it's yeah to keep you to your commitments, having that person that can help you see, you know, from the side of you, super important. Yeah. So I guess what my message is to like you and to all the parents listening is like, when your kid is mad at you, <laughs> when your kid is annoyed at you. I know it's so hard. I can imagine that it's so hard to have this person that you love so much and you want to succeed in everything in life for them to treat you like you're the villain in their story at the moment. But you're on the right track. Well, Madison, I am so grateful to have met you. I'm so thankful for your honesty. And I just I'm I'm so appreciative that you're so open and you've shared a little bit of insight into your own like mental health journey and your depression when you were a little younger and what you've done to kind of help you cope and, you know, all the skills that you're learning and that you're sharing them. I think that you're such a change maker and your family, all your sisters and your mom, the team that you are, I'm, I'm just really excited that you're in this stupid club with us and I think you're doing some of the most important work and we need siblings like you having these conversations out loud so thank you thank you I mean I could say all of that at you times 10 I hope you've been enjoying this podcast if you like what you hear please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha <laughs> <laughs>